Keep that in mind this morning. The Lord calls us to himself. The earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who is he who may ascend to the hill of Yahweh and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob, Selah. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory Selah. Yah, who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts is the king of glory. Well, welcome to McKinney Bible Church. It's so good to see you all this morning. Let's join together in singing the glory of Patra as we open our time. in the beginning is now and ever shall be Most merciful, holy, and triune God, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. Week by week, we gather before you, called into your presence, standing here as Christians to confess our sins to you. We need no reminder that we sin, but standing before you makes our hearts humble to the sins we've committed against you and against others this week. We need no reminder of your holiness, but when sinful people are called before a holy God, our hearts see more clearly how perfect, how beautiful, how set apart you are, and how stained with sin and shame we are. And week by week, Lord, you remind us again that you indeed are merciful, that you forgive sins of a people who humbly confess their sins before you, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we confess that we have put ourselves first, even before you this week, in word, in thought, and in deed. We've let the idols of the world into, 
enter into our households and our hearts, and we've desired the lies they tell us about who we are more than we desired who you tell us that we are. We've stumbled over temptation and have not broken free from the sins that so easily encumber us. These sins and many more we confess to you, asking that in your mercy to forgive us, cleanse us, and turn our hearts to you in Selah. Lord, hear our prayer and let joy and gladness be restored to us. For your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In Christ Jesus, you have shown how merciful you are to sinners. You forgive us. You cleanse us. You sanctify us. You put your Holy Spirit into our hearts and you call us your own. It is in him alone that we receive the entire forgiveness for all of our sins and find our acceptance before you in peace and joy. We give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 38 through 54. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there with him heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Our next passage will be in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew on the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew on the hip. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 22, verses 11 through 21. Psalm 22, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the message, shall we sing together? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us, you care for us, you give us your word, and we thank you that when we come into your presence as today, you speak to us. And so now we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son, bless us from your word, make us people who shine for Christ, make the church a lampstand that shines brightly. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a lady named Abigail Schreier wrote a letter to the lady over mm, student life, I guess I would say it that way, in the second largest school district in the nation, having 600 thousand students. It was in L.A. County. And she received a letter back, back, Dear M.X. Schreier. 
Now, if you don't understand that, of course, MR is Mr. MS is an abbreviation for Mrs. or Ms. But MX is, well, that's the way we have to talk today because you might not be a Ms., a Mrs., or a Mr. In this, well, she wrote a book. I'm going to give you the name of the book. This is, this is uh, Abigail Schreier. She was writing to the school district, getting information for her book. The book is called Irreversible Damage. The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. What has happened in the United States since hmm, something like 2015 is a 1,000% increase in transgenderism. What has happened in the UK since the same time is a 3,000% increase in transgenderism. Why? Well, there are lots of reasons why, but let me just tell you, before that point in time, it was 0.01% of Americans who were transgender, and the majority of those were guys who transgendered to girls. It was almost unknown among females. In the L.A. school district, in kindergarten, the teachers read a book to the students called Who Are You? Do you know that you may be a girl with a boy's brain? Do you know that you may be a boy, a boy's body with a girl's brain? In Los Angeles School District, from ages 12 to 18, Students are allowed to leave campus unbeknownst to their parents to get hormone injections to trans from one side to the other. They are right now processing to put in the schools medical centers for transgenders to get their hormone injections. They are promoting double mastectomy and reproductive uh, blockage, which means you're taking testosterone if you're a girl. This is incredible. It's happening because of a few things people believe. This woman, by the way, writes for the Wall Street Journal. She is not a Christian. She is not against transgender. What she is upset about is the fact that it is starting at 12 years old in the school district and parents are not allowed to know about it. You see the trouble in our land? We're in trouble. It's easy to blame it on the Democrats, I suppose, starting with Barack Obama, most assuredly, 
as under his watch we move from, well, normal marriage to gay marriage. And the coalition has begun now, and it is, it is advancing rapidly. Not only do we kill our babies before they're born, but now once they're born in the United States, we pervert them. But my thesis has been that the trouble in America is because of the trouble in the church. We are the ones to blame. And I'm going to refer to our passage again in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, 19, and 20. But I'm first going to talk about just a, a, a trend that follows through the Bible. It starts from the very beginning. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 3. And in verse 15 comes a famous statement by God. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. He will crush your head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, of course, we all realize the word seed is one of those kinds of terms that can be singular or it's a collective term. And so the curse upon the serpent, what falls out from that, falls to every man, woman, and child. There's enmity between the serpent and Eve, and there's enmity between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. Now, of course, when we're talking about the serpent's offspring, we're not talking about uh, angels. We're talking about human beings. So that the beginning of sin in the book of Genesis traces two lines, the line of Abel and the line of Cain. One seed they're both born of Eve, but one is the seed of the serpent and one is the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman is killed. And so a second seed is born, Seth. And then you trace through Genesis these two seeds, and it comes all the way down to Jesus' day where the seeds battled at the cross. And of course, Christ won the victory and crushed the head of the serpent, which is pictured by the fact that his cross is planted on Golgotha, which is a skull-shaped hill. So he's hanging with his feet just above the ground, crushing the head of the serpent. It is the place, it's called Golgotha, because it comes from a contraction of Goliath of Gath, whose head was brought to Jerusalem. Of course, it could not be put in Jerusalem. It had to be put outside of Jerusalem because it's unclean. And so it was put into this hill. And this is what it's named after. 
where David crushed Goliath's head, now Jesus crushes Satan's head. Of course, there's the ongoing struggle now between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between those who believe and those who do not believe. The struggle continues. So what happened in Genesis is God said, okay, what's going to happen to the seed of the woman is the serpent's going to bite him on the heel. That's what happens to us. We've been bitten. This is picked up in the passage that Hyde read to us. You have to give some thought to it to understand it, but in Genesis chapter 32, as Jacob is going home, God promised him when he was leaving the land, I will bring you back. This is what I'm going to do. Now he's coming back into the land and he's uh, gotten his four two wives and two concubines and all their children onto the other side of the river. They're coming into the land and he's back on the other side and somebody wrestles with him. He doesn't know who at first in the night. And the wrestler could not prevail and so he touched Jacob's socket, his hip socket or his thigh I should say more properly and he was, he was wounded in the thigh so that now when he walks away he's limping. Because of this touch which comes from Yahweh, for he names the place where he wrestled, Peniel, which means the face of God. I've wrestled and I've seen God face to face and my life has been spared, he says. So he names the place Peniel. But when he gets up to leave and walk into the land, the sun rises, showing a blessing on him, but he is limping. Well, of course, back in Exodus, we're told, Moses is told by God, now, now who is it that makes the seeing see and the blind blind? Who is it that makes the deaf and the dumb? Is it not I, Yahweh? And yet we recognize that all illness, every sickness, every malady comes as a result of sin. And we understand this because we understand Paul in 2 Corinthians where he tells us that he has a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he calls on God three times to take it away and he gets the response, no. My grace is sufficient. So he says, okay, most gladly then, I'll be glad to be weak, that I might be strong. So just like Job, God uses Satan to bring about things in people's lives that we could call Satan's bite on the heel. In other words, every Christian, the seed of the woman, every Christian metaphorically limps through life. That's what we do. We limp through life. 
It might be a physical problem. It might be a family problem. It might be, you know, a, a job problem. There's always a limp. Always a limp. And Jacob's coming back into the land, and now he is uh, incapable of fighting now. He's got a limp. He has to depend on the Lord. And, of course, that's what the lesson is. Satan bites us in the heel. We get a limp, and now we have to depend on the Lord. Now, sometimes, you know, we seem healthy enough and everything seems fine and our world is all going right. And what happens during that time too often is we don't depend on the Lord. That is the warning that Israel receives in the book of Deuteronomy several times when you go into the land and you get houses that you didn't build and you get trees that someone else planted and you have crops all ready to harvest. Don't end up thinking you did this yourself. But that's what Israel did. They became proud. So all I'm suggesting is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way down through Jesus and the Apostle Paul, what happens to every seed of the woman, which seed of the woman are believers ultimately coming out in Christ, what happens to every seed of the woman is God puts something in their life to cause them, remind them, test them so that they will trust God. What's happened to the church today is the church is falling away from trusting in Jesus and the church is now trusting in herself. And it happens particularly when it comes to God's word. Because the modifications that are being made across the land in the church, the changes that are being made, come because of new interpretations or uh, interpretations that come about because we want something, so we jiggle the text, we wiggle it and shape it into what we want it to be so that we can have the kind of life that we have. So what I told you about Los Angeles School District, of course, is creeping through all of California. It is true on the East Coast in New York. It is true in Oregon and different states, and you can bet soon enough it will be true in every state so that 12-year-old kids can do things their parents do not know, and it will cause irreparable damage to them. Because you see, these kids that are doing this are not doing it because of anything but pure pressure, and it's what they're being taught by their teachers. And when they go to the Internet, this is what they see on the Internet and so, at 12 years old, are you capable of thinking clearly like that? Of course not. This is where the land is, and I'm suggesting to you that it comes from problems within the church. So now I want you to think, and you can turn your Bibles to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, 
And I want to remind you that this section 320 comes in three parts. It is marked off, by, and now it came about after this in chapter 18, 1, in chapter 19, 1, and in chapter 20, verse 4. And we said it, it follows a pattern where we have Moab first and then Moab last. So Moab's defeated, and then the explanation of Moab's defeat comes at the very end where Moab, excuse me, I said the wrong thing, Philistines, Philistia, where the Philistines are descendants of the giants. One of uh, Goliath's brothers mentioned in chapter 20, verses 4 through 8. And they're, they're the giants. So how is it that David can defeat the giants? Well, we're told he did, and then we come down to the end, and we're told how he did it. Then we come to the two larger sections, one in chapter 18, verses 2 through uh, 13, which has two parts, and each of the parts is summarized in chapter 18, verse 6, and in chapter 18, verse 13, that the Lord helped David. And in, verses eight, in chapter 18, you have the mention of Moab and Edom and in different nations, Ammon and, and the uh, Syrians or the Arminians. And again, it is just telling us a whole bunch of stuff, not saying much about it, except there are two things to notice in chapter 18, verses 2 through 13. Two things to notice. Okay, three. Yay, the Lord said two things, but three. Three things to notice. One is David won every battle. And that's number one. Two, he won by the help of the Lord. And three, what happened to these nations is they lost their gold and silver to David or they became servants to David, so they paid a tribute of gold and silver and bronze. And David dedicated all of it to building the temple. So all these victories, all the booty is not to advance David. All the booty is to advance Yahweh's house. It's for him. He didn't take any of it for himself. Now, when you get to chapter 19, you get an explanation because when you look at chapter 18, 2 through 13, you discover Ammon is only mentioned once and just in a list of those he defeated. But Hadad-Ezer is one of the main subjects of chapter 8, and then you see 18, and then you see in chapter 19 how that works out. Now, Hadad-Ezer is the word Hadad is one of the names for the god Baal. Baal means master. Hadad is the god. And Ezer is the word helper. So Hadad Ezer is the god who helps the Syrians, the god who helps the Armenians. But in the end, it's Yahweh God who helps David. And who's defeated? Well, Philistia is defeated. Moab's defeated, Ammon's de defeated, Edom's defeated, and the Syrians are defeated. 
But then you come to chapter 19, and we get this long explanation about Ammon. And in chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, we discover the setting is this. David, Naash has died, the king of Ammon. Naash is the word that you find in chapter Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than all the other creatures. Naash. And Naash had been kind to David, and he's died. So now David is going to return kindness to his son, who's now king, Hanan. And Hanan means grace. That's what it means, grace. But Hanan's uh, advisors suggest to him, well, here's the problem. You really think David's coming here to console you? No, he's coming here to spot your land. He wants to take everything. So what do they do? They take the messengers that come from David and they cut off their garments at their buttocks, is what it says literally in the Hebrew. And they shave all the hair off their bodies. It's to humiliate them, and that's exactly what it did. And so David says, okay, go up to Jericho and wait for your hair to grow. Obviously, you know, when they, are, they got new clothes and all, they're covered up, but, but they've lost their beards. They, they're, they're, they're feminized to humiliate them so that Amon can say, look, we don't need you. You're just a bunch of women. We will, we will destroy you. That's what it means. What did David do? David did nothing. Nothing. But what happened in Ammon is they realized that they'd become a stench in the nostrils of Israel. And so they figured, okay, he's going to come and do battle. So what they did is they got ready for battle, and they arrayed for battle by getting the Syrians to come and help them out with 32,000 chariots. Now, David doesn't have that kind of chariot forces. How is he going to win? Well, of course, we've already heard in chapter 18, Yahweh helped him. And so the battle mounts. We don't need to go through all of that. And in verses 10 through 15, Joab defeats part of them. And in verses 16 through 18, David defeats the rest. And in verse 19, Hadad Ezer discovers we've lost. And so what does he do? He comes over to David's side and and will not help Ammon anymore. So he becomes subservient to David. And then in chapter 20, you end up with Ammon being defeated when the city of uh, Ramah falls and David puts the crown on his head. And depending on your translation of the Bible in chapter 20, verse 3, where David cut them with saws and sharp instruments, that's not a good translation. It means he put them under saws. That is, they became servants to him, and they're now going to handle saws and different things. They're going to be used to help build the tabernacle, the temple. So there you have it. And right in the middle of chapter 18, uh, of this whole thing, as it moves inward, is chapter 18, verses 14 through 17, 
where we're told that David rules with justice and righteousness. That's the main point. He's gotten all these nations around him, so he looks exactly like Adam back at Genesis, who's going to go out to the four corners of the earth by creating this huge group of progeny, and they're going to extend God's rule all over the earth. Now David has done it. Now he hasn't done it all over the earth, but he's, he's a picture of that happening. And then what we suggested then last week was that this is what Jesus then, Jesus becomes the final picture of this, and in fact, the realization of it. And we see it best in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that passage we all know so well as the Great Commission where Jesus says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, all authority. So go make the nation's disciples baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, all of this language is picked back up under the covenant God made with David. We don't have time to go through that. We did it last week. And I, I don't want to miss what I missed last week, which is getting through the application. So, that's the preview. That's the overview to get us to Matthew. Now, I want to say just one more picture. I can't remember if I said it last week or not. I'm going to say it this time. And, and then we're going to move into, I, I have a list now of seven, because seven's the perfect number. Seven things the church needs to do. When Israel, the, Matthew chapter 28 is a picture of what happened to Israel. That's, remember, your Bible has a place in it where you flip a page and it says New Testament and then comes Matthew. It, 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 I mean, I, I'm not telling you literally to do it, but what you need to do is tear that page out because the Bible's the Bible. There's no division. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happens during Old Covenant, not New Covenant. At the end of each of the Gospels, the New Covenant is established, but it happened. So you have to look at the Bible as one whole thing. And when you read in the New Testament, everything is looking back to the Old Testament. So when you read, make the nation's disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, what do you think of? Here's Israel down in Egypt. Are they a nation? No, they're servants, they're slaves, but they're God's son. So he brings them out by the blood of the Lamb, and they cross over water, which is, according to Paul, they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, and they went out into the wilderness, and then 40 years later, they crossed another river, and they went into the promised land. There's all kinds of stuff in the New Testament that looks to that. There's just one point I want to make here, and that is when they crossed the river, they went to Mount Sinai, they became a nation, and as a nation, they were told God's word. And in God's word was the building of the tabernacle whereby God could dwell near them and be with them. Of course, when we go out and we make disciples, that's what happens. 
They come to trust Christ. They cross through the waters from death to life. And then what happens? We do exactly what Matthew says. We teach them to observe all that God, that Jesus has commanded us. That's what happened in the wilderness. They were taught. And then they're going to go in and they're going to conquer the land. And you know it's been, when, when they go in, it's just a mess from that point on until David. And then the kingdom only lasts two kings before it's in a mess again. So what I'm saying is when we, when we look at First Chronicles and we see what David did, this is what we're supposed to do. Only we're not supposed to use guns and bombs. We're supposed to use the Word of God. And we go out, and what are we going to do? Jesus is telling us, conquer the nations by making disciples. Now, I want to talk to you about how we can do that. And I mentioned that some. And I, I want to talk to you about the fact that this, this is not... This is not where the church is. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born. Well, ours translated is again. The word is really from above, born from above. That's what happens. The spirit comes and gives you new life. You're, you're born from above. And then notice what he says. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going so are those who are born of the Spirit. Now, what is he talking about? Now, yesterday was pretty windy. You know, and I'm sitting in the house, and it's just, it's just blowing by. And you know, as well as I do, that the word Spirit is the word wind. And when you go back into, into Genesis chapter 2, or chapter 3, when God comes to meet with them in the cool of day, it's in the wind of the day. In other words, the Spirit's coming, blowing through. And so God is this wind that sweeps and goes, and nobody knows where he comes from and where he is going, but that's also true of his people. We are little breezes attached to the big wind. That is, we're in Christ, and where Christ is going is where we are going. The problem is, the church is not now going where Christ is going. And so there are seven things, I just mentioned them at the end last week, that are essential. They have to do with who the church is, when the church meets, what God calls us to, that are essential. If we want to see the church change and then ultimately the nation change. Because remember, 
When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So the first thing, a lot of you came to me last week and said, well, the fifth one you couldn't remember, was it prayer? Well, the answer is no, it wasn't prayer. But of course, prayer should be on the list. So the first one is prayer. And so now I'm going to move as our service goes. I'm going to move down the row of the things we do, and then I'm going to add two at the end. So prayer. We are called to prayer. And in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first thing we're told to do is to pray. And we're called to pray for all men, even to our go- for our governors and those who are in authority, that we might live with tranquility and peace, with all dignity and godliness. And then it goes on to say, this is God's will. He wants all men to come to faith and to the knowledge of the truth. And so we must be a people of prayer. That has two sides to it. So there's this side, which is confession, and there's this side, which is petition. I just mentioned the petition side. Where the church is, they also need the confession side. We've read this verse. I'm going to read it to you. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And my people who are called by my name, if my people who are called by my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, this is my people. Broad, not me. Of course, me is part of the my people. But notice what God is telling in 2 Chronicles. He's talking to a nation. Now, we are the nation. The nation was taken from that Jewish group, Matthew chapter 21, and it was given to another nation. And 1 Peter says, chapter 2, that's, what, that's us. We're that nation. Now, if my people humble themselves and turn from their sin. Now, what's happening in the church I'm sad to say there's a Southern Baptist Convention coming in June. They're like this, but probably after June, there's going to be two different groups of people. Isn't that sad? Another division. Go from 3,800 Protestant denominations to 3,801. We need to confess our sin. And our sin, well, is worldliness. And we take the Bible and just clear statements. So I'm going to mention, I already mentioned the LBGT, however many letters there are, that's entering the church as well. I'm going to mention another one. 
women preachers. Now, let me clarify that. It is not wrong for a woman to teach. Obviously, mothers teach their children. Ladies teach ladies' Bible studies and so forth. But within denominations that are somewhat conservative, now women can be elders and teach, teach the sermon. Well, you know and I know the gospel, the, God, the Bible tells us no to that. And so what happens? Well, you and I know certain famous women that do this, but some of us still listen to them. If my people humble themselves and repent, then I'll come and heal their land. The second thing, I mentioned it last week, is mastering God's word and being mastered by God's word. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. How many different places could we look to in Scripture? When you pick up your Bible and you open it up, this is not just a book. This is God talking. And when God talks, we're supposed to pay attention. And so we look into his word and we shape our lives accordingly. Now, What's happening across our land is happening within the church. We need to train our children to live according to God's word. This means we need to train young men to be men, and we need to train young women to be women. This means that the church must realize that the cultural mandate has not died, and we're called to train our children to get married, bear children, and live for Christ. Well, it happens in the church. But it happens so, so too lately now, instead of earlier in life, so that childbearing years come to an end. You get married at 30, you don't have as many childbearing years, but that's what's happened in the church. That's just one little thing. We're to be mastered by the Bible instead of saying, wait a minute, the earth is full now. We don't have to fill the earth. Well, that's not how God talks to us. So we need to come back to God's word and take it for what it says. The next thing, I said it last week, is tithing. That is... Well, just think of it this way. If you don't pay your taxes to the U.S. government, what happens to you? Well, you end up paying more. You pay a penalty. And when we don't pay our tithe to God, Malachi makes it quite clear that we're not blessed by God. On the way back from winning the battle in Genesis chapter 14, talking about Abram, it says this, and he said to them, uh, excuse me, I, I, got, I have the wrong passage. From Matthew chapter 21, chapter 22, 
Jesus' opponents are talking to him, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Of course, they're talking about, should we pay tax to Caesar? And over here he's saying, he's saying, yeah, you got the coin there. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. Over here, you have an image. You're made in my image. Give it to me, which is all we have. We belong to Christ. We give it to him. And so uh, when, when, uh, when uh, Abraham came back from battle, he paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And Hebrews chapter 7 says, Melchizedek is Christ. If Abram paid a tithe, so should we. Now, what's happened to the circles that you and I have come from, or a lot of us in here, is it's been taught, well, <clears throat> we've been taught grace giving. As God gives, you give back proportionally. That's a true statement. But if you read those chapters in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, it's talking about giving to needy people. It's not talking about what was talked about in the Old Testament, bringing a tithe to the Old Testament church. So there's, and, and the Baptists are good this way because they talk about tithes and offerings. Tithes is the 10% that they're required to give. Offerings is that portion that's above that. And so, as uh, God blesses us, we may choose to give beyond a tithe to give even an offering. Reaching out, giving money so that needy people can be taken care of and so forth. This is what the church must do. The king's table, communion. This is where I meant to read. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him, and talking about Abraham, and said, Bless, blessed, bless, blessed be Abraham, Blessed, let me start again. Blessed be Abraham's, the, of the God of the, Mo I'm sorry. Somehow I cannot read that right. Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has, uh, who has delivered you, your enemies, into your hands, and he gave him a tenth. There's the tenth, but what I'm interested in is Abraham brought out bread and wine. Bread, bread and wine. So on day three of creation, the earth brought forth grain and fruit plants. Bread and wine, not broccoli. That wasn't made yet. Because a the theme runs all through the Bible. Bread and wine, bread and wine, bread and wine, 
all the way down to Christ. And we're called to come together weekly to eat bread and drink wine. What's happened in the church is this has become insignificant. I think there are many different reasons. One reason is that preachers are too prominent and they want all the time. Another reason is when you think that the table is just a memorial for you to remember God, it's nothing more. It tends to be minimized. It's also argued that it's so special that it shouldn't be that often. But in fact, in the early church, they took the bread and the wine daily as they met. And by the end of Acts, it came down to on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, they took bread and wine. And this is what we're called to do. We're called to value this food that's set before us as God's food for his table. And it's a table for kings. Kings and queens. We come and eat. We eat heavenly food that transforms us. It's not some magic. It's God's work within us, transforming us by the work of Christ on the cross. And each week that we come, we recognize that we come as a needy people, a hungry people who uh, are not what we should be. And so we eat and we drink with joy because God graciously supplies what we need. The singing of psalms. Therefore, be careful not to walk as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, unsavedness, but be filled with the Spirit, or be filled by the Spirit, we might say it that way. And then come three statements that are of certain grammatical uh, way of writing in the Greek that it could be, it could be translated when you're, when you're filled by the Spirit. It shows up by speaking to one another, by psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, or it might be translated. Here's how you get filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, which is the word psalming, with your heart to the Lord. So the early church came together to sing psalms. And as I said last week, 150 years ago, that's mostly what all churches sang. Not, they didn't sing, I'm not saying they didn't sing other things, but they sang psalms. Psalms are hard, takes effort. And so it's easier for us to want to go back to other things, but here's what I'm saying. This, no one can tell where the Spirit is going 
You can't tell where the Spirit is coming from. And the little breezes, that is, people who have been born from above by the Spirit, they're attached to that wind. And if we translate it, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's unsavedness, but be filled by the Spirit by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Well, then that has a whole new sense. What God wants is people psalming Scripture, singing it to Him. And the psalms are the hymn book of the church, and the psalms, well, they show us how to worship. They show us what we should counsel. And they show us what justice and righteousness is. Finally, unity. Unity is so essential because when we talk about the church, it's easy just to think about little old McKinney Bible Church. But of course, when you say the church, the body of Christ, you're talking about something that is worldwide. And it's easy to get to thinking, you know, McKinney Bible Church knows all the truth, and nobody knows it like we do. But of course, that isn't true. We don't know all the truth. If we knew where we were wrong, hopefully we would confess we're wrong. And there are other churches that don't know all the truth, but they're not just like us. And if they knew where they were wrong, they would confess they were wrong, hopefully. And so all around this globe is the church. And it has all different kinds of people in it and all different kinds of denominations. Now, truly, some of them are apostate. There's no doubt about that. But there are a lot of people who trust Christ who do not believe of the same about the atonement that we do. There are four different theories of the atonement. Some people believe differently. They believe in Christus victor, which is Christ is the victor over Satan. They don't emphasize substitutionary, penal atonement. Does that mean they're not saved? I think not. If they believe Jesus died and that death, his victory, took care of their sin, then they're in, even though they don't think the same way we do. And this head of the church, he's head of McKinney Bible Church with all of its mistakes and problems. And he's head over here of this First Baptist Church with all of its mistakes and problems. And he's ahead of the Presbyterian Church with all of its mistakes and its problems. And if I reach too far in that list, some of you will be going, they're not really Christians. Be careful. It's true. There are apostate churches. But be careful where you name that church to be apostate. So, if we just take all of the Protestant churches, all of the Christians around the world that 
trust Christ. They believe the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. They believe they're sinners. And whichever theory of the atonement they happen to believe, they believe that when Jesus died, that took care of their sins. All around the world, Jesus is head of all these people, including McKinney Bible Church. And he prays in John chapter 17 for unity. And Paul prays for unity. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But what's happening is churches fight with each other. Churches circle up and, uh, you know, we don't want our people to hear something some other church says. Now, Jesus says a unified church is the kind of church that causes the world to know that you, Father, sent me and you loved them. What can we do? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can emphasize all of these, emphasize truth. We want truth. And we can emphasize unity. Not only can we emphasize unity, we can promote unity. Promote unity. That is, get along with other churches. Do things with other churches. Even when they're not exactly like us. Now you know that some of our folks who were missionaries supported by us left us over this very thing because Craig Nelson started teaching a little differently on eschatology. Craig Nelson started teaching a little differently on the Lord's table. And they said, we don't want our people to hear that, so we will not be your missionaries and we won't accept your money. Is that unity? Friends, that is sin. Just outright sin. Now, I don't say that to condemn them because all of us are capable and to some extent all of us do that. And we wonder why the world doesn't listen to us. Because we need to change. McKinney Bible Church, First Baptist Church up here, other church, we all need to change. And these are the essentials. Let me just come back to one and then I'll quit. Take the Lord's table. Wouldn't it be something if churches across America said, wow, Jesus wants to feed us at his table. Why aren't we doing it? Wouldn't that be something? I'm suggesting to you that we have a bite on the heel right now. 
and it's time to look to Jesus and trust him again and what he says and what he calls us to. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your love is vast. It's beyond all measuring. And on this globe right now, there are nearly 8 billion, 8 billion people. And within that 8 billion people, some say about 3 to 3.5 billion named the name of Christ. And we recognize within that 3.5 billion a certain number. We don't know how large a number, but it's large. Our apostate Christians are, really don't believe. Nevertheless, your kingdom around the world has grown immensely since the days of, since the days of Paul. And your head, you are, you are like in Revelation 2 and 3, speaking to the churches, calling us to come together. And I pray, Lord, that we as a church would hear what you're saying to us and that we would shore ourselves up at McKinney Bible Church and then begin to pray for other churches so that we might present a united front that is faithful to Christ, faithful to give our money, faithful to pray, faithful to sing praises to you from the Psalms, faithful to sit at the table. All these things we've been talking about. And then finally, to really believe that Jesus' prayer can be answered in time. Because that's what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about after he comes. He was talking about these people are unified. Then people will know that you sent me and you loved them. So help us here. Father, I am praying for conviction. Because if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sin, I will come and heal their land. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord.